1: of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. My guest on today's podcast is Louis Vondomerova. Louis is the Director of WealthUp, an independent advice practice based in Cape Town, South Africa, that oversees the US equivalent of nearly $60 million in asset center management for 115 client households. What you think about Louis, though, is how he and his partner, in anticipation of a shift in the financial advice industry towards more automated client services nearly 10 years ago, developed a robo-advice technology prototype to help clients in South Africa have their investments managed at a low cost, which then struggled to gain traction with consumers and inadvertently gave them the inspiration to launch their own fully human financial planning practice instead. In this episode, we talk about how after four months of development, the robo-advice prototype that Louie and his partner created were not seeing the rate of success they'd hoped as Most clients weren't completing the process because they actually wanted and needed more investment advice than what self-directed technology could offer and made them realize what consumers really needed was better financial planning. We also explore how even though the auditing firm where Louis and his partner were employed were very interested in this robo-prototype they built, they refused to purchase the product, which led Louis to a crossroads that ultimately led him to make the decision to leave the firm and start his own financial planning practice and how even the his partner built their business based on how they could offer better portfolio management services to their clients initially, they've now decided to employ a discretionary fund manager to outsource all of their investment management so that they can have more capacity to fully focus on the financial planning advice and the client experience. We also talk about how at just 24 years old, Louis decided to launch his own practice as he realized if he was going to take a big risk, his age gave him an advantage to do so while avoiding the regrets that so many successful entrepreneurs have of not starting their businesses earlier in life. How while being considered for an approved practice award through South Africa's Financial Planning Institute, their in-depth review process highlighted how Louis's practice was still not really fully following the six-step process and motivated Louis to go even deeper with more financial planning services like estate planning and better demonstrating the impact of financial decisions to clients. And why Louis finds that running an independent practice is challenging even though it's been 10 years and the practice has come a long way because there's always that room to grow and find new practices and skills to discover to change the way that we're delivering advice to clients and managing our teams. And be certain to listen to the end where Louis shares why he feels that the financial planning profession is uh, first and foremost a helping profession. As an advisor, it's important to recognize that providing value in a client's life can sometimes be as simple as just giving one's time and energy to help the client because that really is a rare commodity these days. Why Louis believes it's valuable for advisors entering the financial services industry to spend time discovering their individual strengths and find employment or build a firm that focuses on their own individual values to have a more fulfilling and successful career. And how Louis's own definition of success has changed from early on when he hoped to build a big robo-advice technology enterprise to today where he can instead maintain a tight-knit group of clients so that he can have more time and capacity to make a difference in their lives and be well compensated for his value while still being able to spend meaningful time with his family and have some fun too. And so with that introduction, I hope you enjoy this episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast with Louis Vandermadova. Welcome Louis Vandermadova to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast.
2: Michael, thank you so much for having me.
1: I'm I'm really looking forward to the discussion on today's episode and and what I think will be a, a a really interesting unique perspective. The financial advisor success podcast, as we've grown it over the years, has attracted a pretty broad international listenership. You know, we we are I'll admit like primarily focused in the U.S. Our, our guests historically have been almost all from the the U.S. or Canada, but I know there's a much broader global financial planning movement. We have folks that listen from from Australia. Uh, from New Zealand, a little bit from India and Japan. We have some groups in, in Europe and in the UK and the Netherlands, and a fairly sizable growing listenership in South Africa, which I know has had a, a very growing active financial advisor community and, and now CFP financial planning movement there. And I know you, you are based in South Africa, have grown a business in the South African world of financial planning. And so I'm really excited both just to hear an, a, another journey of financial planning we all we all carve our own paths as we build firms but particularly to understand just like what does financial advice and financial planning look like in South Africa like how is this evolving in another country cuz you know in in the US we got all of our own weird rules and dynamics and regulatory challenges that we're dealing with and every country has its own version of this. So I'm excited just to hear and learn more about what is, what is the evolution of financial advice and financial planning look like in South Africa these days?
2: Yeah, Michael, it it might surprise you that it's probably not that dissimilar from what's happening across the globe. It's kind of this increase in regulation. It's our clients being worried about inflation, worried about what's going on in the markets. Will they have enough to retire. What has happened though is kind of this evolution of compliance and adding the cost to advice. So independent financial advice in South Africa has gotten more expensive. The group of advisors has grown and specifically certified financial planners have grown. I think we're close to the 5,000 mark in South Africa, yet it's still a fairly small part of advisors in total because part of the regulation includes people that self-funeral policies and you know car insurance. So that move to professional advice, I think, has been something we've seen over the last 10 years. Very excited for us to possibly even get to a place where the term financial advisor is regulated. And so that means that someone that maybe works for an insurance agent wouldn't be able to call themselves a financial planner. They would have to say, well, I'm a product agent or product specific agent. So that's quite interesting. Yet the consumer is still very confused. They don't always know, you know, when should they reach out? Is it only when they need a product? What happens if they actually need advice or guidance? How do you work with someone when the best solution is for you to pay down debt? So I think very similar challenges with what you see across Australia, across the UK, across America, this kind of identification or a branding issue, I guess.
1: Yeah, that you know that whole phenomenon of just people that are in the financial advice business that want to distinguish themselves from the folks that are in the in the product business, you know, to me is is something that has just been rippling around the world for I guess for for the past twenty years, but particularly the past. 10 years. And I feel like it was, I guess basically it was the 2000s where the internet showed up and all of a sudden people could buy a lot of financial products without necessarily going through an advisor before that. like you, you literally couldn't buy it without someone to sell it to you. And The rise of the internet and all these different ways to start buying financial products directly from companies by going online has been pushing advisors in most countries to Sort of shift and redefine their value proposition. Like, well, yeah, anybody can like buy you the stock or bond or mutual fund or insurance policy or whatever it is. Like, I'm going to actually give you comprehensive financial advice, and my value is in the advice. And yeah, I mean, ultimately, the advice may mean that there are some things that you need to get. You know, I I go to see my doctor, and then he prescribes me drugs sometimes, and then I do need to go get my. Go, go go get my drug prescription, but I don't I don't see the doctor to buy the drug. I see the doctor to get the the medical advice, and that shift from products to advice around so many countries around the world all seems to be creating the same dynamic where regulators are trying to figure out where do you draw the line between product sales and advice? Because like both are necessary. Sometimes I really I really just want to buy a thing, and I just need someone to sell it to me, you know. A- reasonably responsible, prudent way. Other times I really want advice. But, you know, the product side of the industry really likes to hold out as advisors because it tends to make people buy more. The advisor side of the industry really wants to distinguish themselves from the product side of the industry. And so that just seems to be playing out all over the place. You know, the the UK did its retail distribution review, its RDR reforms about 10 years ago to try to separate products and advice. India's done a version of this, uh, uh, Australia had their future financial advice reforms, their FOFA reform to to try to begin doing this you know we've debated it here in the US for for more than a decade now about separating proxy from advice and and should should titles be regulated you know XYPN filed a petition last year for the SEC to regulate financial planner the FPA just came out and they said they think financial planner should be regulated as a title as well so we're where is that like regulatory evolution in South Africa at at this point? Like, just is there a separation of people that sell products from people that are giving advice? You know, in the U.S., like we have insurance companies and brokerage firms and and RIAs on the advice side. Do you have similar structures there in in South Africa? Yes,
2: Michael, we do. And I think what most clients would refer to is either are you independent or are you linked to an insurer. And so what happened in the old days is that you have only a few large insurers. You know, there's three in South Africa. They each have their own color. So people would distinguish them between the the blue or the green or the red one. And uh, everyone knows who that was. And yet people that bought products with those insurers were very disappointed with the outcome. And so when you engage with someone, you know, and you maybe tell them, oh, you're a financial advisor or financial planner, they're saying, well, which insurer are you working for? So, there's been the shift to people saying, well, maybe I should try independent advice. And maybe 10 years ago, that was the main thing. You know, people would seek out independent advice, but yet that also is not a guarantee for good quality advice. I think the regulation has brought or raised the level of advice that you can receive from these insurance companies because they are not forced to comply. We have something called TCF as well, which stands for treat the customer fairly. Some might say they don't st- stipulate fairly well or fairly bad, but the, the intention is to, to treat them well and for the client to actually know, you know how much are they paying? What are they expected? Is the product fit for the consumer? And that obligation sits on the insurer or the or the product house level. So I think that definitely has made a massive difference.
1: So t- TCF was a newer, a newer, more recent standard that came into place? Yes, absolutely. So we had PHASE,
2: so F- Financial Advisory and Intermediary Services Act, which governs advice. And now we're on the cusp of going into something called Twin Peaks, where there's a whole new reform of regulation. But it's really just shifting things around and, and very similar. They expected... For commission to be banned, but the regulator came back and said, "You know what? We can't kill this big, you know, life force for a lot of clients or people working in this industry." So commission was definitely not banned, and they figured out a way to rather label it so that a client is aware of what type of arrangement they're getting into.
1: So I understand, like, if you're on the insurance company side of the business, you know, you know, you're linked to the insurance company. You know, you had a a TCF standard, treat customers fairly standard, which frankly sounds pretty similar to in the US historically we had what was known as a suitability standard which was similarly kind of a a fair sales standard like you know you, you have to you have to sell things that are suitable for the person that you're selling them to or like don't sell things that are blatantly unsuitable for them so you need to have some level of knowing your customer and what their goals and circumstances are so that you know someone else could look at this and say at least say like that was a reasonable thing for the customer to have considered buying. They may make different choices, and you know you can make some level of not ideal choice. But you know things that were just clearly unsuitable and inappropriate and not sufficiently explained and disclosed was was a you know a, a banned practice or or you know, had legal consequences associated with it. So it it, it sounds like you've had a, a similar evolution to the sales on the insurance side in, in South Africa as well.
2: Yes, there's actually just recourse for someone. You know, if some if an advisor mm-hmm. sold a thirty-year fixed investment to a ninety-year-old, there would be recourse, right? It's clearly not fit for that client, and there's a there's a process that they can follow. We also have an ombudsman, which really is a is a free legal resource to clients to actually protect them and to assist them from claiming from advisors that were negligent or maybe stole some of the money or invested in fraudulent transactions
1: okay and so you frame this primarily in the sure in the insurance context in in the u s at least we kind of had these as separate channels. there were insurance companies historically that increasingly moved towards advice and eventually started selling investments as well. then there were also just the investment product companies uh you know in in our world it's like mutual fund companies and brokerage firms that that sell and distribute investment products. And so advisors essentially can be linked to an insurance company or linked to an investment company or can be out on the fully independent side as investment advisors. So I, I guess I'm curious, like is there a is there such thing as like linked to investment companies there as well as linked to insurance companies there? Or were insurance companies kind of the the drivers and ultimately they sell everything under their insurance company roots?
2: Yeah, you're spot on. So what these insurers, uh, you know, some of them are, are more than 100 years old. They started saying, well, the market is shifting into investments. Let's start selling investment products but inside of an insurance wrapper. So we can still pay insurance commission to the advisor selling it, yet the client can invest in mutual funds or shares. And so they're getting that benefit. We have a very strong financial system. So there's quite a few independent, and when I say independent, it's like asset managers that have built from the ground up. Very few of them have their own sales force. So it's mainly insurance companies that would have the sales force. The, the asset managers rely on the insurance companies and independent advisors to distribute and invest in their funds. And once again, there's a handful that's taken the, the bulk of the market.
1: Interesting. So, so I guess in in your environment, the investment firms didn't didn't necessarily build their own advisor distribution forces, their own their own captive groups the way that existed for some mutual funds and brokerage firms here. The insurance companies already had the advisors, the agents, the distribution force, and so as as mutual funds and asset management grew up, it either got packaged into insurance products or it got sold through insurance agents because that's just literally where the people were that were out to the public selling.
2: Correct. And they make it so lucrative for those people, those agents working for them by paying them additional commissions and bonuses. And so we also had, I think it was about 11 years ago where they brought in the conflict of interest policy to say that you know, in US dollar equivalents, no one can spend more than $100 on people selling their products in terms of incentivizing them. And so what happens is all these overseas trips and bonuses disappeared overnight because the asset managers couldn't pay for them anymore, unless you were an employee of that insurance business. So if you're an employee, those conflict of interest policies didn't matter. So you could still incentivize people. So it had this strange effect where it probably did more damage than good.
1: Oh, interesting. So so asset managers would try to incentivize sales with, you know, bonuses, trips, other other classic sales incentives. The regulation came through and limited the conflicts of interest. So independents then couldn't get it anymore because it would be conflicted. But insurance companies could still do it for their own employees, which just means, I guess, they get the dollars from the asset manager and then they do it for their own employees. And ironically, that remains because it's technically not an incentive from the asset manager anymore. It's just the insurance company that happens to be compensating their own people in a coincidentally sales incentive manner
2: correct that's part of uh, the sales perks of being part of that company
1: so how does it work in your version of the, the independent channel, the independent advice? Like, How does that structure work? How do those regulations work? I mean, in, in the US, RAs are subject to a, a different set of licensing stamps and different set of regulatory standards than the brokerage firms or the insurance companies. So how, how does it work there for the advisors who are independent and not linked to an insurance company?
2: So here we have one set of license requirements with different types of licenses. So you would see whenever someone you know, promotes their products, they say we're an authorized financial services provider. So every person delivering advice has to have a license. And have a license number linked to that, and then you have specific codes. You know, one to give advice on shares, one to give advice on debentures, and I think there's 22 different different ones. One for insurance. Most advisors cover quite a few of those areas. You know, it might even include things like short-term insurance or medical insurance. Most advisors would cover investments through the form of mutual funds, which in South Africa we call unit trusts or collective investment schemes, and the long-term insurance, which would be kind of your traditional life covers and those kind of insurance products. Then you get a second category, which is a category two license, which becomes a discretionary management license. So there you would be able to make changes To a client's investment portfolio without their signature it's essentially a mandate that you have discretion to manage and then there's additional categories for hedge funds for administrators that would manage this but it all falls under the same financial services provider category and you can look up what someone's license category is and so then they brought in this idea of a compliance officer either internally or externally. So what we're seeing in most businesses, if you're, if you're independent, you would either have an internal or an external compliance officer that would look at those specific license requirements and guide you in terms of how regulation requires you to act. Whereas if you're in a larger group or working for an insurer, they would do that in-house. And so they would, they would apply those regulations quite strictly, where with independent practices, you're almost, you know, you're, you're left on your own and they say, well, we hope that you comply. And every now and again, we'll come and do an audit. It's not yep. structured. You have to report to the authorities, but they come and do a spot check just to see, hey, are you doing the things that you say you are doing?
1: And so, if you're if you're going to structure this way as an independent, does that mean you can like literally just open up your own firm as like a standalone one person firm? You may need a external compliance officer to guide you on some of your own licenses, but like, can you can you actually build and run a firm down to just opening on your own, or do you have to affiliate or be part of some other kind of platform to be able to actually run the business?
2: No so you can be a one man band as long as you have what's called a key individual license in South Africa it's basically are you able to manage oversee and run a financial services business and how they look at that is to say do you have at least one years worth of experience so that's the that's the bar and then you apply to the regulator with a with a stack of forms and then maybe four or five months later you'll have your license And at that point, you will then need to contract with a product house. So an insurance company or an asset manager. In South Africa, there's quite a few. So it tends to mean that you have to have licenses and product agreements with each of these companies so that you can assist your client if they have products with that insurance company. There's a lot of you're not advanced.
1: necessarily selling the products. I mean, like, are, are you well, I guess there's that like, would that of contract back to a product house mean now, you may also still be selling their products and like charging fees and also getting paid commissions for their products? Or is this more of a no, no, like I'm I'm giving advice separately, but just I have to be able to literally implement products. So I need some kind of platform just to hold these things.
2: Yeah. So when you're meeting with clients that they- Tend to almost always have some kind of product. And what we've seen is that it just makes it easier to say, well, you know what, we have a code with this company. It means that number one, they'll give us information. They'll force us to be up to date with what the product entails. And we can link that client to our practice so that we include it in communication Sometimes there's random commission that they pay, but you know, only the product owner would know how they come up with those structures. Yeah, so it's, it's really allowing you to operate and help that client. What we're seeing more and more are these standalone products that don't intermediate. So they don't really wanna give advisor information. They only wanna deal through the client. That brings a whole new set of complexities because, you know, you have to rely on your client to forward you the information, to make any changes, you have to rely on them. So we're in this, in the strange space where a lot of clients have legacy products and then the newer products tend to be either directly with an asset manager where the fees are much lower, there's a lot more transparency and the client can then choose, do they want an advisor linked to that product or not?
1: But can the advisor still get linked to a product that was you know, originally standalone and sold direct? Yes. Yeah, so like can, you, you can, can you get connected to get the information and be able to operate on their behalf?
2: You can get connected as long as you have a contract with that insurance company or that product house. Some of them require you to place new business. And so the regulator really has frowned upon that to say, well, you can't be conditional. You can't enforce someone to give you new business if that advisor purely works on looking off to his existing client base
1: I mean, it it sounds kind of similar to the independent channel here in the U.S. Most investment products are more rooted in brokerage firms here than in insurance firms, but there's a subset of, of platforms that have become, you know, that that were historically brokerage firms that have become essentially custodial platforms on which all of a client's investment products are held. Uh, so here it's it's companies like Schwab, Fidelity, and Pershing. So the independent advisors can get linked to these companies that clients hold all of their investment products on those platforms. The platforms actually arrange all of the relationships and connections to the various asset managers and investment products behind the scenes. So as long as we can get linked to one of those platforms, one of those custodial platforms, then we're able to see all of the clients' investment stuff in one central place, including even managing it with discretion if that's the model that we use.
2: Yeah, that financial organization is a very big piece for clients because they tend to not know what they have and where it is because there is a long list of different products. We have a central place called Astute, which most advisors have a license to, which you type in someone's you know ID number, which is similar to their social security number, and it shows you a list of their products that they have with their permission. And so now you can use that as a starting point to kind of bring in information and start uh, at least knowing what you're dealing with
1: interesting but it sounds like just that that centralization and those kind of p- pipes to connect everything together as it were is is not not quite as established in 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 South Africa as it is as it is here in the US like it's it's harder for you just to get linked and connected to all the different investment accounts and holdings out there because either you've got a contract with companies one at a time you may be too small for them to contract with you. They don't necessarily want to contract with the product houses because the product houses are insurance companies and probably ask for additional fees and cuts to be on their platform. So the the it sounds like your your industry is kind of fighting it out between being caught co- lower costs and going direct, which is sort of what companies like Vanguard did here in the U.S. and going through intermediated fashions with captive salespeople. Except if you're an independent, that kind of leaves you in the Cold because you're you're not linked into a large product company that has demand power, but you still need to be able to see what's going on with your clients' financial lives.
2: Michael, I think part of this comes from how the regulator also defines advice in South Africa. So it's anything that could lead to the change of an existing financial product or to the sale of a new financial product. So they still very much see advice and product in the same boat, which Okay. I think means that clients also expect you to also deal with the financial products. There's very few advisors, um, if any, that uh, don't deal with financial products yet to give advice in South Africa.
1: Okay. So do you have the distinction that's been evolving here in the US between advisors that operate on fees and don't get product compensation versus the ones that do still operate either primarily or at least partially with product commission compensation? Is that like fees versus commission split been a factor in in South Africa?
2: It has. I think that evolution was similar from... Commission to assets under management. So, most of the bigger independent practices operate on an asset under management basis because they found that it's scalable. The clients feel comfortable with it. The clients might not always know how much they're paying. There is a smaller community of fee only where people are saying, you know, I want to charge a fixed fee or monthly retainer. But in reality, most of them still cover both areas. They would say, well, I'll I have a smaller group of assets under management, or I have a smaller client base that pay me commission. And then I have this growing part that pays a fixed fee. Yeah. So it's it's in the minority for now.
1: Okay. Interesting. So, I mean, it it sounds similar to just where the U.S. was a number of years ago, where it started that evolution, and well, still in many advisory firms, they have you know roots of commission-based work that they've done with clients and and continue to receive trails, and may occasionally do new business. But the bulk of what they're doing now is assets under management fees or subscription fees or something that directions like the they're building more towards advice fee models, but they still have all of the commission based work because they did it historically. And that's where a lot of their clients were and still are. I mean, even even in the US, the the folks that are truly standalone on a fee only basis is still a very small minority of the the overall number of advisors. Most of us are still affiliated, I guess linked in your context, to a brokerage firm uh, or an insurance company. And we may be what here in the US is called dually registered. So we have a a brokerage or insurance license and and an advisory license. But that means, I think, similar to what you're describing, like you're doing some of both. You may be growing more in the advisory context, but you haven't necessarily eliminated the commission-based side of the business that you grew and built in for the first 10, 20, 30 years, depending how long you've been doing it.
2: Yeah, we're very fortunate. I think that we are probably five to six years behind in terms of regulation, in terms of advisor technology, in terms of market readiness. So we can look at developed markets and we can say, what's what's working in Australia? What's working in the UK? What's working in the US? And our regulator does the same. They kind of try and and take inspiration from those countries and say, okay, let's this didn't work there, so let's try a slightly different different route. I think the the bottom line is financial. Services industry and financial advice is very healthy and and it's evolving in South Africa and probably on par with most other countries and, and, and ahead in fact.
1: So now tell us a bit about your advisory firm. Like what what is your business and what do you do?
2: So Michael, uh, January next year will be the ten year anniversary of Wealth Up, and we're based in Cape Town in South Africa, and it came about after. Me and the person that employed me straight out of university, um, my first boss, brainstormed how are we going to deliver advice 10 years, 20 years, 30 years from now? And the theme that came up very much was the use of technology servicing a younger client base. And so we thought at that point we were a little bit ahead of the curve. You know, robo-advice was going to take over the world. Our clients were going to disintermediate. And we were part of a large auditing firm at that time. And we could see the younger clients of the of the practice and the younger audit trainees want to do their own thing, yet they got 90% and then they came to us and said, well, which funds do I select? Or how do I structure this investment portfolio? So they think that they were doing their own thing, but they weren't really. Fast forward a few years, we built a prototype of a kind of robo advice structure so that clients could invest directly. And yet we saw that very few of them took that last step. And interestingly enough, it was mainly older clients, people that were burned with life insurers that had a very disappointing experience, but they just couldn't take that last step in terms of investing their retirement funds or or making a change. And so we used that as a mechanism to bring in clients. And We actually went out and we went to go and see them and you would meet at their house, maybe even late afternoon, evening. And we would used to have discussions around how did they not take those last steps? And how can we help them with their financial planning? And as you build the trust, they slowly but surely start saying, ah, oh, actually, you know, now I understand. I have someone guiding me and someone that's, that can take a little bit more accountability. And so that was the early stages of wealth up. We are now almost 10 years into this business. And we have a team of six that, that serve a relatively small group of families.
1: I want to make sure I understand kind of the the roots and early days of this, because again, if we if we go back ten years ago, like you know, it's it's I guess literally like it would be twenty twelve. You know, a wealth front and betterment have just arrived on the scene. The big buzz is robo advisors. as You put it, like a robo advisor is going to take over the world. So so if I'm understanding correctly, like the the original version of your firm was essentially going to be like a robo advisor in South Africa. We're, we're going to build a, a version of this technology so consumers can leverage the technology to get their you know, get their own advice and have their own portfolios managed. We want, to, we want to bring this to South Africa and that was going to be the model.
2: Absolutely. It was allowing someone to go onto the website, create a very basic profile, do a risk profile to determine how aggressive they want to invest and see if someone would actually take the steps to complete an online application form. That that was essentially it. And so we wanted to create a very low cost prototype to see if this would work and very much was not what we expected. We didn't get massive volumes, which I think was maybe a marketing problem. We didn't get young clients of small recurring payments. It was older clients' Wanting something different, and we had to even in those early stages change direction and say, "Well, actually, here's an opportunity here. What we what we set out to build, maybe the market's not ready for it, and/or maybe advice would mean that we use technology in our business to make our back office more efficient. Which you know, ten years later, actually is what most of these robo advisors are doing.
1: In- interesting. So. So you were aiming to do the South African version of Robo Advisor and just people weren't I guess pe- people just weren't showing up that interested to say like you know neat 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 solution like I'm just going to open my account and here's my here's my life savings as it were. Yeah, yeah. So so like what was the what was the gap? Like just what what didn't work do you think between what you were expecting envisioning originally and and how it played out in practice? What happened?
2: I think the gap was the cost of attracting traffic to a website. Even 10 years ago, it is that typical thing of, you know, you think you build it and they will come and yet, you know, crickets, (laughs) no one, no one showed up and building a funnel into a financial planning practice and building a financial planning practice that can scale is very different from building one that serve your customer first and create a transformational relationship. And so I think the models were just too far removed from what we were doing day to day. We thought that, hey, we can build a tech company. But fortunately, I think we realized that very early, that number one, it's expensive and probably your marketing is going to cost a lot. And maybe even your market is not ready for that.
1: And I feel like that's similar to a lot of how it played out here in the U.S. as well. You know, the 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 vision ten years ago was you know a very similar. If you build it, they will come. Just we're gonna we're gonna make this easy to buy, low friction version of a low cost investment platform, and and expect consumers will just flock to it. And just like that, just didn't really. Happen. I mean, to be fair, like you know, the companies like Wealthfront and Betterment, you know, the the they got some very accelerating movement in the mid two thousands as they got to like a billion and two billion and three billion and five billion and and closed in on ten billion under management. But you know, relative to the U.S. marketplace, which we measure in the tens of trillions of dollars, like their market share was just minuscule tiny. I mean they they were they were getting small fractions of a percent of of market share. I mean I, I used to joke for most of the time that they were growing like Rick Edelman, who's just a, a fairly well-known high profile advisor here in the US, who like started his firm 30 plus years ago and just, you know, ran a radio show, attracted clients and And built a planning firm for them. Like Rick Edelman personally grew a planning business with more revenue than Betterman and Wealthfront combined. And like he just bootstrapped it with a radio show, not like hundreds of millions of dollars of venture capital or whatever the. All, all the robo-advisors had raised. And it, it was this similar sort of realization. Like The numbers looked big in absolute dollars, but A, they were charging a quarter of the fees of everyone else. So by actual revenue, their businesses were much, much smaller. And relative to the amount of money that they were raising, like these were really small firms and slow growth rates. Cause, I mean, there were advisors that were just bootstrapping with no money that were building bigger businesses than robo-advisors.
2: Yeah, Michael, I think if we had more money at that time, we would probably only learn that later on. So we would probably (laughs) have thrown it at, oh, let's spend on advertising and let's spend on hiring some engineers. And, you know, maybe it would have looked different. But at that point we said, actually here's another opportunity to really just to grow an independent practice. We we took this business because we created the initial model while we were still employed at this auditing firm and we pitched it back to the business. They were very interested, but they unfortunately didn't want to pay anything for it. Yeah. So, so that was kind of a, I've found myself at a crossroads where either you give away this thing that we've been building or playing around with, or I resign at the age of 24 and start a financial planning practice on my own. And so the thinking was, what's the worst can happen? I go back and live with my parents and, you know, find another job because when you read biographies and anything that successful entrepreneurs say is that they wish they would have done it earlier. And that's the kind of thing that stuck with me. And it was easy to fail at that point. You know, the odds were stacked, stacked against me, but I, I also had time and the risk was probably the lowest it would ever be in my life.
1: So how long did you continue down this sort of robo style path before ultimately deciding like this, this ain't working, this isn't going to do it?
2: It was quite short, so we probably had the website up and running for about four months. And, you know, we had a developer that we paid. Uh, it was very basic. You know, it was some HTML forms and <laughs> so it would, it would actually just go and populate the PDF documents. Yet, the, like I said, the traffic that came in was not what we expected. It was actually type of clients that we would want for a for normal financial planning practice. I guess we, we just discovered the power of Google at that point.
1: You know, on the on the flip side, uh, to me there there's something interesting there around the the dynamic of, you know, building. I mean, I'm 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 thinking of could the the Eric Ries lean startup style mentality, which is, you know, you you build what's known as the minimum viable product. Like what what is the most basic version of this thing that we can build just to figure out whether or how many consumers actually care about it and like care to pay for it. And Look, if a whole bunch of people like it and want to pay for it, it's pretty straightforward to reinvest or get more dollars or raise capital to to get more. But that's a lot cheaper than raising a bunch of capital, building the thing, and then finding out after you spend all the money that not a lot of people are actually interested in it. So it 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 strikes me in that in that context of well, you know you you were young in your career and you know trying to take an entrepreneur path and saying like I don't have a lot at risk here let's just let's just go for it. Like you you did it. What to me is a very positive low stakes manner of let's just get an initial thing out there and see how much interest and momentum there is look if there's more we can reinvest and do more instead what you found out pretty quickly and without spending a you know a huge huge amount of money was oh this just doesn't look the way we expected
2: yeah testing those assumptions you know almost treating it as an experiment which i think now it very much was, was reading those lean startups and really enjoyed technology. I I think in the back of my mind, it was like, wow, I'd love to have a tech business. Yet we had to make a decision. Are we a financial planning business or are we a technology business? We definitely can't be both.
1: So what comes... Next, like you, you, you do this. You decide that model ain't working. You're obviously still, still here ten years later with with the business. So, like, what comes next? Like, what did you pivot to that you started building instead?
2: So, at that point, when we started the business, I owned fifty percent, still do, and my business partner Marius, who hired me out of university, uh, he's turning sixty four this year. He owned the other fifty percent. So, the combo worked quite well. He could fund some of this new business while I try and make a go at it to just see, you know, do we attract older clients and can we can we build a financial planning practice from scratch? So the business we worked at at this auditing firm, the shareholders extracted most of the value for them. So they didn't really want to reinvest in the business. It meant that we had very old computers, still those CRT screens. <laughs> right?
0: uh-huh.
2: We didn't really have a long-term plan because... You know, like they say, in the long run, we're all dead. So these these investors and shareholders had a very short time frame. And so when you're 24 and you can think 30 years ahead, I think even 20 years, it makes a difference to what you want to take on and what you want to build. And so I was fortunate to actually then say, okay, well, how do we turn this into a practice where we can attract clients? And for for the first three years, we had no support staff. So we used technology to automate as much, as possible on the back end, so we used you know voice over IP phones, so that actually you can be anywhere, and the client thinks that they're phoning an office line, and it's coming through to your cell phone, and vice versa. I remember being on the road one day, and a client phoning, thinking that they now through to the office, and I'm sitting somewhere in in my office and having a discussion with them, and that turned out to be one of our biggest clients, just because. I was the only one of three advisors that picked up the phone. So the bar was very low to get clients. And so for the first three years, it was myself and and no assistants. And then that auditing firm had a buyout. So an asset manager actually bought out the shareholding. And my business partner said, you know what, actually, this is not for me. I don't want to work for an asset manager. I'm going to come and join you. And so he he joined me in the business, still having shareholding and still being actively involved, but he was very much committed to the financial planning practice at the auditing firm. And so when he joined, I think it just, it boosted that growth rate where we now have an established advisor, a shareholder, clients are saying, well, we actually, we're drawn towards this new way of financial advice. We want things to happen quickly. And so that meant that most of the clients that he had a very good relationship with followed him. And as you know, it's a it's a business of relationships. And so when he joined, we started adding on staff members as well, purely because the volumes got to a point where it's necessary to have someone to help you move pieces of paper around. Because in the beginning, I thought, well, I'm going to pay someone and half of the day, they're going to be on social media. So it's not going to be necessary to to have someone. So we probably hired way too late, but that forced us to invest in the systems and use technology as far as possible to automate things and, and to run virtually.
1: So help me understand just what the, what the value proposition was. I mean, just like, what, what were you doing for, for clients who were going to hire the firm for financial advice?
2: So at that point, Michael, it was very much around, we can build a better investment portfolio than your previous advisor. We will drill down into the fees, we'll help you select a better asset manager, we'll help you build a better portfolio. I now know that there's a lot more to financial planning. And so that came about when a client asked us, who can I speak to for financial planning? And so my initial response is, well, that's what we do. You know, how how do you not know this? Yeah. And actually just spending a bit of time unpacking why she asked that question made me realize that we actually spend all our time on this client's money and the investment portfolio, and they don't even experience the financial planning piece of it. So even though we might think we're doing financial planning, we're not labeling it correctly. Clients are not experiencing it as financial planning. They identify us as their money guys, you know, helping them to pick a better portfolio. And even at that point I knew that that was not a place that in the longer term we can compete on because you know, ultimately if you believe in an efficient market that at some point you're gonna lose that game, you know, right? Picking the best fund manager. Strangely in South Africa, we have four very large fund managers in terms of the size of assets that they manage that have dominated the top quartile of markets. So you could throw a dart at these fund managers and you and your clients could think you've done a really good job. And so intentionally, we started expanding from that, saying, well, what other areas do we need to look at in terms of financial planning so that our clients can actually experience this and say, well, you are actually helping me plan and not just look after my money. And that made a shift from kind of rear view mirror you know, this is the past performance, this is the asset allocation to what's coming up in your life? What do we need to plan for? What are the, what are the life-changing moments? What are the life transitions that's coming up for you? And so that's kind of forced our conversation to be a little bit more balanced, not just historically and what do we think the market's gonna do, more to that kind of locus of control to say, well, what do you have control over as opposed to what's interesting?
1: So what was your business Model at this point, like, are are you charging assets under management fees on these portfolios?
2: Correct. We had a sliding scale, and we still do, based on the size of your investment, ranging from 100 basis points, so one percent, down to 0.25 percent, and we applied that to our clients. So a lot of them were used to paying you know, 1% flat. That was the model that most advisors used. And so we could compete on fees because we didn't have large overheads. We could compete with the technology that we used. You know, we employed companies like similar to Morningstar and Effie Analytics to almost wow them a little bit with the tools that we have. And, and it, was, it was very valuable because the clients didn't have this, right? Only now, looking back, I can say, well, what we were doing was, <laughs> was, not, was not enough. And that's part of this evolution and this process of moving forward. So we weren't charging for financial planning. We didn't have any planning fees. We were charging a percentage of assets under management to look after their money. And I think we did a, we did a reasonably good job.
1: So so what was it that changed in practice to try to make you more financial planning focused or or make the conversations more financial planning focused was that a, a change in a fee model like you, you started charging for the financial planning in the hopes that they would focus and value on focus on it more and value it more was it something else in your process or delivery like how, how did you make yourself you know less focus on the portfolios and more focused in the financial planning conversations? How did that actually happen?
2: I think it was three things, Michael, over the last five years that have led us down this path. Number one was that client saying, who can I speak to for financial advice or who can help me with a financial plan? So that, that will always stick with me. Number two was getting more involved with the Financial Planning Institute. And so they govern the CFP designation in South Africa. So when you apply, to become a certified financial planner, you apply through them. They work on all the continuous professional development. They and they had these awards that you can enter. And so part of it was to become a approved practice where they put their stamp of approval to say, you guys do financial planning the way we think it should be done. And they came back to us and they said, well, yes, you're doing financial planning, but number one, it's not in line with the six steps that we would want you to follow. And there's some pieces that we want you to demonstrate your value on a little bit more. And so that set us down the path to improve the way we deliver estate planning, for instance, improve the way we visually show our clients what the impact is of their decisions. Because those early days of building a business, I think, was so focused on building the business that the client experience and the client, ultimately what the client needed I don't wanna say came second, but the the focus on building a sustainable income was more important because I wanted to know that, hey, next year, I'm still gonna be able to do this. And so that meant, spending time on building, I guess, working on the business instead of working in the business. And so, you know, five years in, it allowed me time to now work in the business. And so, well, actually, if our clients need advice, how do we create something where we can actually compete on as opposed to finding the best investment manager? Because ultimately, you know, we can be replaced. And so if a client comes to us thinking that we have the secret source or secret formula to find the best manager, I think we're setting ourselves up for success. And we've been very lucky that that wasn't the case. So we employed a discretionary fund manager, to handle those investment decisions. And that forced us to say, well, actually, we're not going to be those experts anymore. We'll take off the expert hat and say, let's help you figure out and visualize the impact of your financial decisions. And we started using Asset Map, which was a game changer uh, in our business. It forced us to now Asset, think Asset of...
1: Map, the, the company here in, based in the US. that does. Yeah,
2: I think we were the second South African... Practice to actually incorporate it. So Adam Holt and the team—they're working with a South African group that distribute Asset Map in South Africa, and it translated so beautifully, and clients loved it. For the first time, they could actually see everything on one page, we were engaging in financial planning conversations where previously we just got stuck in that default mode of let's unpack your investment, let's help you understand what's going on in the markets and what the impact is, that we never got to these future thinking conversations, not as concrete as what we wanted to to be able to deliver that experience that someone says, oh, actually I've gone through financial planning and I see the benefit of it.
1: So, all right. So I, I, I've got a couple of, of questions here. I want to actually go back for a moment to just, you were talking about Financial Planning Institute and that part of the shift for you was that they they have a way to like, I guess come in and look at your practice or audit your practice, evaluate the 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 quality of your financial planning, and tell you whether you meet their standards to be a, a a quote approved practice. and And that going through that process with them was actually part of what pushed you to say, okay, we need to get a little better here. We need to invest a little bit more here because they reflected back to you here here are the areas where you're you're a little weak and need to come up further to to become an approved practice. So my understanding, right? Like that's that that's part of, I guess, a, a a service that the that the institute offers there that helps you get up to speed on what it really means to be a strong financial planning firm.
2: Correct. It's a it's a paid service, so you have to apply for this. And where that came about was actually to try and change the way these large insurers are working to say, well, if they can have their stamp of approval on the way they deliver advice, at least they know that it meets a certain standard, a minimum standard, well, not minimum, a standard of delivering advice. And so when we got back the first report saying, well, actually, you're a little bit lacking, That initial response was, ah, you guys don't know what it's about. You know, you you come and deliver advice. But actually maybe a week later, we realized that Hey, there's there's some truth to this. And sometimes it's hard just getting outside information and having to say, well, actually this this there's some truth and maybe there's some work here for us still to do.
1: And and so, I was going to ask like what do you what do you pay for that? I guess we've will have to like translate it currency-wise, but like what what do you pay for that? How do, how does that work? So it worked out to about
2: 2,000 US dollars yeah um okay. as part of this approved practice where they would come in and do the auditing and so i think the process so they,
1: so they come they come up front to evaluate you and then they come annually to like reassess you
2: uh, correct They have if i remember correctly it was three stages so you have to do the initial screening stage then you do the, the kind of virtual where they look at your website and look at some of the, your, your cases that you present to them. And then the third one is an on-site where they come and do the on-site inspection. They also have a financial plan of the year competition, which is a very similar process where they come and kick the tires. And I would I would urge anyone to enter these competitions, not to promote what you're doing, but actually to put your practice at test and to ha- to get them to help you identify the areas that need work. You know, it's really easy to get stuck in the details and miss the, the big obvious things, you know, like our clients didn't know that we were doing financial planning or the way we were doing it was not obvious enough, which seems like an obvious thing, but we just, we never realized it until someone told us, you know, this is actually like in clients told us, the, the approved practice process told us, and we got these external feedbacks. Now, I think we could have easily have missed it and just carried on and said, no, this is the way we've always done it. Even as a young firm, I'm very scared of those words because I think that that means you need to pay attention there.
1: And so... Once you go through it and you get approved, like what is it what does it mean to be an approved practice at that point? I mean, like are you, do you do you get on a special list? Do you get like a fancy badge you get to do you get to put out? Is it is it you know merely pride and joy and you know the the refinements of just having reinvested in yourself? I mean, what, what does it ultimately mean to to be approved practice where you go through the the trouble and effort and the cost of having this review?
2: So Michael, I think we expected it to mean clients will come running through the door, you know, once again, let's build it and they will come. Yet- How'd that go?
1: <laughs>
2: In reality, we said this process was very helpful and it helped us to get to where we are, but maybe it's not worthwhile for us to do this every year. And so we actually stopped doing that FPI approved practice. At the moment, I think there's five or six FPI approved practices and they're they're busy changing that structure as well. So it is very valuable. It's a it's a sign to clients to say we've gone through this test and we've been approved. The way we're now delivering advice. I don't think clients care as much about those awards and those things than what we think they mean, but it with the process, similar to planning, right? The plan is probably not that important, but the process of planning is very important. And so going through that helped us identify the areas that we need to work on. And so now I'm trying to identify, well, what else is there that can help us identify these blind spots and these areas that we can just constantly evolve and deliver better advice to our clients?
1: So the second thing that struck me as you were describing this is that you said part of the evolution for the firm and going down this road was that you actually, if I heard correctly, you, you outsourced to a discretionary asset manager so someone else can start managing the client portfolios so that your, your team and your advisors get to focus fully on the, the financial planning work. Did I follow that correctly? Correct. How is that transition when the firm was originally founded to be doing doing investment portfolios for clients? And now you, well, I mean, I guess you, you, you do it by outsource contract, but like the, the thing you were founded to do is now a thing you outsource yourself.
2: It's been a very interesting evolution, Michael. And so the company we use is called Portfolio Metrics, and they now have a global presence, predominantly in the UK and in South Africa, but they have a, an American office as well and a few other jurisdictions. And so why that resonated with us and why it was so important is that if we rely on one individual to make those calls and tomorrow that person's not there, what does that do to our recipe and the way we deliver advice? Well, it's you know it fails immediately. And so in my mind, that means clients run for the doors or they find the next person that can deliver that if that is what they were there or that is what they expected. So engaging with portfolio metrics has meant that we had to conform to the portfolios we use. We had to conform to the process of getting to a portfolio. We had to conform the asset allocation, the fund managers that consist of those portfolios. And you know what, Michael? it's meant that I can now work on the things that are important and not just interesting. Because you can spend so much time listening to asset managers about the market and how they're positioned, but a lot of that is really just their marketing to you so that you can invest client funds into those portfolios. And Mm. although that might be very interesting, it's probably not the important piece we need to spend our time and attention on. That time is probably better spent in front of clients answering the questions holding their hands navigating through life and the complex decisions they have to make and so by outsourcing that i know that we have a company that does a lot of work way better work than what we can you know they have a team of cfas and you know even they get it wrong at some points so why do we think we had a competitive advantage to do a much better job yeah so it's it's been a very interesting evolution i'm i'm glad we did that because it now means that we have a more sustainable business that's not just reliant on one or two people making big financial decisions or regarding their portfolios at least.
1: And how do you pick a company like Portfolio Metrics? I mean, just like how how did you choose who who we're going to work with as a partner on this?
2: Yeah, that was quite a quite a long process. And so in South Africa there's a there's quite a few discretionary fund managers and it's it's really gained momentum over the last probably the last eight years, where you can find a discretionary fund manager around every corner, but the quality of work they do differs vastly. The fees they charge differ vastly. So an important piece for us was, was the team and the track record. And so portfolio metrics had a big tick around their, their team and their capability. And then actually looking at what they do, You know, how do they do a fund due diligence? would they be able to do it better than what we can? And that was the interesting part where a lot of the discretionary fund managers asked us, oh, which funds would you want to include? And that was a warning sign. Because if you're relying on us to do your job, then what are you doing? Yeah. You know, why, why are why are clients paying you so that we can make that decision? Then we might as well just do that ourselves. And so we took the approach to use portfolio metrics because they had, they had one list of fund managers. They have a global asset allocation. They have technology that allows you to build a custom portfolio, but still using those same fund managers within the process that you deliver. And they've built this community of like-minded advisors, advisors that are saying investment management is important. We want someone independent. It's so important that we actually have to outsource it. And so that really resonated with us. And I think the, the culture of the business, you know, it's an entrepreneurial firm, They hire high performers and they've delivered. So we're very grateful for that.
1: And just how do you get comfortable with the, the shift and the transition? I mean, you had said like we, you know, but then like we had to conform on, you know, the asset managers and the allocations and, and the choices and the approved list, which I'm presuming is not necessarily how all of these assets were organized going in. So that requires a whole bunch of changes. I, just talk to us about like, how do you actually handle and navigate that change? It's still ongoing. Like what's that like when you're rolling out to clients and saying, "Hey, you've been working with us for years, like we really believed in these portfolios, but now, now we believe in these <laughs> new, different portfolios." <laughs> we
2: found another religion, and now we're moving to that.
1: Um, yeah, I am. You're like, cool. how, how how do you navigate that conversation?
2: I think we we've looked at the risk per client, and so obviously with newer clients that come in, we would look at what does the existing portfolio look like, what is the cost. To move over to this discretionary manager. And and the question should always be, is this in the client's best interest? A lot of the clients now, the the investment management piece is maybe not the most urgent component. You know, if you've just lost your spouse, we're definitely not going to spend all our time moving over your assets to this new manager. And so we we're looking at, you know, where are the urgent areas we need to address in a client's portfolio? If it's New cash money that's coming in, it's much easier. We can allocate it to this discretionary manager. The process is easier. And so we are identifying that shift to say, well, let's not do everything at once, but over a period of time, we're going to do the sensible approach to try and move more of the assets to this discretionary manager. There might still be some exceptions, right? And that's the benefit of having a smaller firm. We can have clients that maybe want something different and we can accommodate that could we accommodate that if we were 10 times bigger maybe not with as much ease because we can get we get to make those decisions as business owners right What do we want to deliver for this client? Not saying that every portfolio should be unique, but there can be some exceptions. So we've been having conversations with clients around, you know, what are the risks in your portfolios? How concentrated are the managers? What does the cost look like? What are the alternatives? And it's very similar to a change in a a portfolio before we had the discretionary manager. It's now just replaced with another name. For most clients, they rely on us to make those decisions and say, well, you know, please guide me, show me which route is the best. We, We went through the process to understand why I need this portfolio, what it should look like. Now help me pick the best way to execute them. And I think that's also where technology plays such a huge role is actually in that account execution and the actual transactions because that we can automate that can you know it might be a passive solution or it might be discretionarily managed or it might be someone that is still managing that portfolio that we don't we don't necessarily have a problem with if there's no additional risks so it's maybe a long answer to say it's a it's a evolution and it's a process that we have on an individual client, conversation. So at the moment, we're probably about 60% of our assets that are sitting with the discretionary fund manager. There's some exceptions in terms of the pension funds that we can't move. Some clients where the tax bill would just be too big to do that. And some clients where it just hasn't been a priority, there's been other more pressing, important things to address.
1: So Louis, you're doing this transition to the discretionary fund manager, it sounds like sort of functionally, this is similar to, we, we call them TAMPs or turnkey asset management platforms in the US, similar kind of, you outsource discretionary management, the, you know, they manage your client portfolios on your behalf so you can focus elsewhere in the business. How, how does the pricing work for you in, in, in this model? Like what does what portfolio metrics cost and then like who, who, who pays that and, and how does it get paid?
2: This was one that we grappled with a bit, Michael, and we actually ended up passing on the cost to the client. And the reason for that was the client paid the same fee they would have before implementing the discretionary manager because portfolio metrics managed to negotiate wholesale pricing with the fund managers and they charged 35 basis points. So not cheap an expensive asset manager. We think that they've delivered the alpha and they add the value in terms of what you're paying for. And we've had to reposition our pricing to say, well, part of our job is to oversee this and we might need to change at some point to a different discretionary fund manager and we're still holding them accountable alongside you. You know, we're working for you, Mr. Client. You are the only one paying us. We're not receiving income from a third party and we're going to spend the money that you're paying us to spend more time on financial planning maybe some transitional planning you know focusing on your estate expanding the work that we're doing we still think the investment management is critical and we're not outsourcing all of the decision making, yet we have this additional partner and it's costing you the same. And so for a lot of clients, they agreed with that and they think it made sense. Some said, well, this is too expensive. I want to have a very low-cost, passive implementation. And we were able to facilitate that. And we would explore and see, okay, what's the what's the cheapest way to just buy the market? In South Africa, we tend to have a fairly inefficient market still. So a lot of managers have added alpha and we've been able to position that i'm not sure if that'll carry on forever but so far it's worth
1: so i'm i'm struck by that that i guess you in in the in the US there's been an evolution of different versions of fund classes mutual fund share classes that have a lower cost structure for advisors who aren't who aren't necessarily paying the who aren't getting the brokerage commissions and the brokerage compensation as well as the rise of ETFs or exchange traded funds that tend to have a lot of that stripped out it sounds like there in 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 South Africa those those versions of mutual funds are still the the dominant the primary ones that you get access to even as an independent so a large provider like portfolio metrics can come in and say we're negotiating a lower class, a lower cost share class that has some of those costs removed since they don't have to pay us for distribution because we're already bringing advisors and assets. And so they, on the one hand, they can then pass that savings on to you. On the other hand, that that gives them room to charge their fee because they can they can charge their fee and say, well, you know, our platform is thirty five basis points, but we're saving you thirty five basis points on the underlying costs. And then you can go to clients and say, look, here's how much you used to pay for the funds that you were getting. Here's how much you're going to pay now for portfolio metrics plus the funds you're getting. The total fee is the same. So it hasn't, it hasn't changed for you. It just comes from slightly different buckets, but now you get to shift out some of the outsourcing of just the raw portfolio design management and implementation. And you get to focus on due diligence in portfolio metrics, instead of due diligence in every, every single fund that you're using for clients.
2: Absolutely. There was this evolution of what they called clean pricing. And so previously, a lot of the mutual funds would have built-in rebates, so money that they would pay back to the platforms or built-in commissions. And so advisors would be able to use clean priced funds, which didn't have that in. So what portfolio metrics did was one step further to actually go and negotiate with those asset managers based on bulk. And so it it brings in a bit more complexity because you don't always just wanna buy the cheapest manager. You don't always wanna invest money with the manager that's willing to give you the biggest rebate. But in this scenario, it worked out that the total cost of the client's existing portfolio was round about the same, in some cases cheaper. And for clients, it made sense. It's an extra layer of people that can go and kick the tires.
1: But then you have to re-explain and reposition your fee with the client because at some point they're going to say, "Like Louie, I used to pay you to like literally make the portfolio, and now Portfolio Metrics is making the portfolio. So like that's great they're doing, it, and they get their deal. But like why am I still paying you the same fee when you're not doing the same stuff anymore?"
2: Hundred percent right. And we were very scared that that conversation will come up. It didn't happen so once. Did it
1: it did <laughs> not happen once.
2: Not even
1: once. So we're terrified uh, of it. And in practice, no one asked. No one
2: asked. They said, well, this is great. I have another team working for me and someone to kick the tires. And, you know, they didn't say you can go and more. play golf now. <laughs> it doesn't cost me more. I think part of part of the expectation was that, you know, what worked in the past isn't necessarily going to work in the future. And so that's also how we positioned it. You know, we, we might have been lucky, but a lot of it's worked out fairly well do we think it's going to work out well over the next decade? We probably, at that point, the way we positioned it was to say that a lot of these larger managers had the excess returns when there were smaller managers. How do we find these smaller managers? Well, actually, we don't have the skills to go and make sure what these guys say they're doing and what they're actually doing matches. And And I think any small practice would probably if if they were speaking the truth, would say the same thing, right? we We don't have the skills, and even if we if we did, would we be able to act on it on the same time and treat all of our clients in the same way? So it was very much a client decision, but it was also very much a business decision to say, are we building a sustainable business that makes sense?
1: So, now talk to us, how did the financial planning side of the business evolve and change once you outsourced the investment side?
2: I think the short answer is we had time. So, we didn't have to spend all our time kicking the tires and listening, not not even kicking the tires, listening to someone else's marketing presentation about how great they're going to be and they were all compelling and we would walk away from these sessions and say wow this is great how what do we do well let's split our money between these managers and that's maybe not the most elegant way of of treating customer right, funds you know, so it's,
1: you, it's, you know whole, whole come out and they make a compelling pitch because usually they're pretty, pretty good at that that's what they do and then you're, you're caught up in all the bind of like, do I really want to add them in? It's changed. It takes time. But like, that sounded really good. Is my client losing out if I don't include this in? And, and you, were, you were going through all of that.
2: Exactly. And it's nine out of 10 times you end up not doing anything and saying, well, actually, now we know and we can have the conversation. And Michael, that became a crutch. That became a crutch because our conversations would default to what the portfolio is doing and what the market is doing and what the asset manager is doing in expectation of what the market is going to do. And yes, it was very interesting, but we didn't get to the crux of what are our clients afraid of, what's coming up that they need to plan for, what's keeping them up at night. We thought we did that because we were reading, we were listening to the kids' podcast, we were listening to all these guys, but yet in practice, I don't think we actually did that.
1: So you had mentioned that Asset Map came in your process as well. I'm I'm really curious just to hear, like, how do you use Asset Map in practice?
2: So Asset Map had to change the solution a little bit for the South African market. So, you know, terminology and and rand based structures as opposed to US dollar. But when they did that, and I went through the process myself, going through the the onboarding information capturing and that was that that worked fairly okay we're not using their digital onboarding for clients because i think that piece is so valuable that i wouldn't want clients to do that on their own you know just the financial organization is a piece that is extremely valuable because you can bring in all the information that's necessary so we use that very much as a presentation
1: Mm. I want to understand that more. So so kind of that digital onboarding is since like the the data gathering process, you don't want to send clients a tool like asset map to you know put put all their own information in to do that onboarding because you actually want to do it with them directly in person.
2: You know what Michael with a lot of clients they they're so scared of this financial planning meeting because there's some there's some guilt that's coming with their money or there's some emotion coming up for them that if you are requiring them to put this in on an online process, for me, it feels like you're taking the easy route out and you're expecting them to do a lot of hard work. They're sitting there scratching their head, not knowing, is this an asset? Is this a liability? Is this, you know, (laughs) where does this fit in? And the type of clients we're attracting are not the ones that should know these things, right? It's people that want to have a thinking partner, want to make these decisions and don't really need to think about the complexities of which field do I put this this number in? Where okay. do I get this number? So for us, that is part of the value add. You know, we'll, we'll okay. find out where your financial products are. We'll help you organize it. We'll help explain to you what you have. And so hopefully for the first time that you actually see on one page how much money you've accumulated. And for a lot of clients, just reflecting back that number is a very emotional experience when they look at the hard work that they've put into, to build this, this amount of assets, because now you're seeing it though, the figure stares at you, right? It shows you the value of your properties. It shows you the value of your investments. If you have a partner, you could, you could look at your combined values and just taking stock of where you are. It's not just a number. It's, it's all the hard work that led to that number. And so as you help building this picture, you get the opportunity to explain to a client in the terminology that they would use, and it fits into a piece that makes sense in their minds. And so now Asset Map is that presentation layer. It's the piece where we organize everything. You know, It doesn't matter how complex your financial life is, Asset Map can cater for it. It might not cater to the third decimal or bring in a very nuanced tax calculation, but that's okay. It doesn't need to do that. It's just figuring out where all these pieces fit in your mind. And that organization immediately relieves anxiety. It means that someone feels, oh, you're looking at everything and not just one piece. And I think that was also the trap that we fell in, where if a client said, well, I want to discuss this portfolio, we would never challenge that. We would say, okay, let's discuss this portfolio. Where now we could say, you know what, Mr. Client, this makes up 1% of your portfolio is this the most important thing for us to discuss today is it the best use of our time together and so many times it's well actually maybe not let's talk about this thing that makes up 60% of my portfolio that you know I really need to make a decision on that uh, was not as interesting but it's it's a lot more impactful and so now asset map is number one it's it's the tool that any advisor can pick up and they can they can have a conversation with a client so everyone's on the same page it's the place that clients can refer back to. They can write on it. So we, sometimes we print it out on a, on a A3 page, and clients can actually write on it, and it becomes a little bit. It becomes more of an experience. And now the financial planning becomes real. That process of engaging in financial planning is actually something they can look forward to. You know, it's a creative outlet. Yet it's with their money. They don't have to feel guilty if they don't know where this insurance policy fits in, or if it's retirement funds, or if it's not. You know, because it actually doesn't matter. That's our job.
1: So is there still like do you still use some kind of financial planning software for kind of additional analysis and projections as well? Or does it all come out of or through asset map?
2: The bulk of the work sits in asset map because what asset map does really well it also allows you to tie in target maps which is really just financial expectations things we need to plan for in the future cash flows or expenses we need to plan for sometimes it needs to be a little bit more technical and we need to link it to your actual investment portfolio and their portfolio metrics has a brilliant software um, called wealth explorer that allows us to almost tie that required return that a client needs to get to a realistic return that their portfolio would be able to achieve. And so we use that almost as the last step to say, you know, Mr. and Mrs. Client, we've created this plan. We know we need to target a 9% return. This is how it fits into your portfolio. And this is how we want to implement this portfolio. But that becomes the easy part. The most time is now spent on, you know, what does your life look like in retirement? How do we get, instead of retiring at 60 to maybe at 55, what does that change? What do I need to give up? Or like, what does that actually do to my life? And so that would be a client that's maybe not going through a major life transition, which is fewer clients these days. It would be a normal planning process where we get people excited about what the future holds. And I'm very much influenced by George Kinder's work in this. And I love the way that he says, "We if we work together, how can we help you achieve your goals and your dreams in a shorter amount of time? And so that's what we're trying to do is to say, well, what trade-offs do we need to make that you are comfortable to achieve this in a shorter amount of time?
1: And so uh, asset maps, target maps, and sort of that like goals-based module lets you target a lot of the goal, just I guess the, the, the straightforward goal projections for clients. More complex folks, you can come back to some of the portfolio metrics tools, but for a lot of your clients, like just the organizing the holistic look of asset plan and then being able to do the target maps covers the core of what's actually needed for most of the clients.
2: Michael, I would even say the more complex someone's finances are, the more we need to lean into using AssetMap because there we can show the impact of making a small change in terms of their outcomes. Whereas it doesn't necessarily have to be more complex to tie it to a portfolio. But if we can see the impact of the trade-offs, and that's what Asset maps allowing us to do. We can see, you know, what does this extra year of working do? What does this extra gifting do in terms of the legacy planning? And so now we can... We can walk through those scenarios and in a client meeting, we might have 20 or 30 different uh, scenarios that we can show them and they can say, oh, this is an impact that I'm not comfortable with, or I didn't know that. And now they start thinking about what the impact is of their decisions. And for me, that's one of the only things we can control. We can control if our clients understand the impact, the potential impact of their decisions. And if they're happy with those outcomes, hey, that's something I can live with.
1: So what does this add up to in terms of the firm at this point? Just how how big is the firm? I don't know if you measure by clients or assets under management or or revenue, but help us understand further just where the firm stands today.
2: Yeah. So we're servicing 115 households. So you could say 115 families and two larger corporate clients where we look after their retirement funds. And so that brings in a slightly different model where we help the employees. If you equate that to US dollars, it's close to 60 million in assets under management, which which brings a healthy revenue and it allows us to to grow a business. It's probably not at the profit margins we would want it to be. A lot of people say you need to target kind of low 30s, we're moving towards that 20% target so that we can still reinvest in the business and, you know, draw out some profits from the business as well. But I think we've found this almost sweet spot of having a, a team of six people manage a relatively small group of clients. And we want to hold their hands during times when financial and life decisions can get really complex.
1: So what surprised you the most about building an advisory business and going down this road over the past 10 plus years?
2: I think I expected it to be a lot bigger 10 years down the line. I think what surprised me is how challenging and rewarding and fun it can be at a very small scale, that it doesn't have to be a national basis or hundreds of employees. And now as family becomes more important because I have a one and a half year old, I'm grateful that it didn't grow into a business of that size because the trade-offs I would have had to make at that point, I don't think I would have been able to. And so probably what surprised me is the flexibility that I now have 10 years in to determine where I want to spend my time with who I want to spend my time. And, you know, that includes clients and family and still have a financially rewarding business from that as well.
1: So what was the low point on this journey for you?
2: I think the low point was the the amount of time that it took. Uh, you know, when starting out to build a business, you hear these stories that, you know, it takes 10 years to become an overnight success. And it still feels like, yes, we've come a long way, but it's only just the beginning. You know, there's still so much yeah. more to tackle and to grow into. And and as soon as you discover a new area, a new field, it's like, oh, here's this, here's this whole new area. And so, yes, that's challenging and it can be a low point. There, there was many times where to give up the flexibility, it would have been much easier to be employed right, and to work for an income. Because as a financial advisor, you can earn a, a really decent salary working for another company, but you give up so much. And now yep. having the benefit of, I think freedom of time is is a double-edged sword. You get the benefit in the long run, but in the short term, you you give up a lot. The paycheck one was one very early to try and figure out how to create a recurring income that's not dependent on someone else delivering that paycheck. But it takes a long time and it really does. And, you know, I'm thankful for having to sit through that because now we're at a point where we can reinvest in the business and we can actually build new skills and say, well, what is what does financial planning look like if it's maybe not just planning side, if it's transformational? So I think we've had the shift from Transactions to relations and now it's from relations to transforming someone and the lives that that they live.
1: So what do you know now that you wish you could go back and tell you from 10 plus years ago as you were getting started?
2: <laughs> sure, Michael, that it's it'll probably pan out very different from what you expect. And that the fun is in the journey. You know, the people you meet, the things you learn the things you experience, and you still make a difference in your clients' lives. Even if it doesn't feel like that in that interaction where you're maybe just explaining a basic concept to, to a client, it's those small things that come back where clients say, well, actually, I really appreciated the fact that you took time to, to explain this to me. No one ever did that. And so that's, that's where it seems like people value your time and your attention and your care. And I think if I could tell myself that 10 years ago, that that is enough, that just giving someone your, your care and your energy and your time, it doesn't have to be more than that. You know, that, that is already a very rare commodity. And we're in this financial planning profession to help people. You know, the people that's been guests on your shows, it, that's the one thing that stands out for me. We It's a helping profession and we get to do that every day.
1: So what advice would you give younger, newer advisors that are looking to become a planner and get started today?
2: I think it's spending time understanding where your strengths are. So for me, it was going through the Gallup Strength Finder and, and helping bring up some of that to determine, you know, wh- where are the things that actually excite you and that you can do all day and it feels like it was a couple of minutes that went by. And so for me, that's, that's learning and it's a creative outlet and it's helping people. And then leaning into that and figuring out how to build a practice or how to be employed or how to help people where you get to live out those strengths. And it, it will definitely not be the same as my strengths because you know we are all unique. It might have similar themes, but figure out that thing for that phase of your life that is rewarding for you and that someone is also willing to pay you for and to pay you well for. Because I think we discount the value that we bring through the work that we do. I mean, it's, it's difficult work, but at the same time, you're making a much bigger impact than what you realize at that point, because you are literally changing the trajectory of that person's life through their financial decisions. So don't take it too seriously, but also do the things that, that you enjoy and play to your strengths.
1: Oh. I'll give a shout out as well, just for StrengthsFinder, long, long been a fan of it. We we actually use it on our, just on the kitsus.com platform for all of our, our team and hiring. So for folks that are listening, this is episode 303. So if you go to com slash 303, we'll have a, a link out for the StrengthsFinder book and tools if you want to check it out. It, it, it is a very interesting self-reflective exercise of where, where really are your strengths and skill sets.
2: Yeah, Michael, it's for me, I'm working with a Gallup strength coach that's trained in the strength finder, but they also have, you know, a ton of work around well-being, And, and it's even work that we started doing with clients. I've had a client go through a strength finder assessment. And this is a client that she recently lost her husband and it felt like she had no strengths. And she said to me, what am I going to do with the rest of my life? And so this was one of the tools. It's not something we would normally do, but we went through, we paid for the strength finder assessment and she did it. And it came back, she was highly skilled in relationships. And so mm-hmm. now we can use that piece as an external piece of information to refer back to say, well, it's not what I'm saying you're good at. It's not what you're saying you're good at. It's what this independent assessment is telling us about you. And you know how valuable that's been? She has a new sense of confidence. She can refer back to it and say, well, actually this is where my strengths are. And then that might not be other people's strengths. And so it becomes this independent, it's almost like an independent research report on your, on your client um, that that you can use and you can position. And it just takes away that thing of, Oh, this is my opinion, or this is what you think about yourself. And to say, this is, this is something structured. So it's, it has been very valuable.
1: I like the power of that. And just the point of, you know, it it can be really reaffirming when it's not just, you know, what, what does a friend or a family say is your strength and you know some sometimes you have to figure out, like is that really my strength or like you just trying to make me feel better because apparently I'm down a little right now. it It is different when you say, no no, like this is a so this is a third party assessment tool. This is what they do, and like this is this is the assessment and the feedback from the tool. Like you got to pay attention to that. They do this for a living,
2: yeah. And so how much of our work is not just, Helping someone have the confidence to to make decisions, and so this has helped her have a bit more confidence in other areas of her life. We can say, okay, how do you play to your strengths? here? Yeah, you know, and what are the areas that are lower on in your strengths that you might find a little bit more challenging? You know, maybe we need to get experts in there, and when we compare that strength finder report to my string finder, I have a lot of the areas that's ranked lower. And so it means that we work really well together because she can outsource the strategic thinking to someone else that doesn't have to sit on her plate.
1: So what, what comes next for you?
2: So Michael, where I am now is predominantly working with widowed clients. So I'm studying to understand the process of administering a deceased estate in South Africa so that I can have this kind of three legs support. So the certified financial planner, the certified financial transitionist. And then in South Africa, we have a fiduciary standard. So it's becoming a fiduciary practitioner to help people that have recently lost their partners or their spouses to rebuild their lives. And so it would probably be people that have slightly more complex financial decisions to make, and that will hold their hands through rebuilding their life and help them weigh up what those decisions look like, to ultimately work with a small group of people that we can build a new community with. We can say, well, this is this is part of your tribe. These are the people that you can connect with to help you through this stage of your life. And it might mean that you're not a client for life forever. And at some point you can be that sounding board or that guide to clients that have maybe more recently lost their spouses, but that we can actually create that purpose through our business for someone to give back to a community and to, to find at least a a little bit of relief to say, well, these people, they care about what I'm going through. They care about me, they care about my finances and they'll help me make a decision. And I'm, I'm comfortable to leave it at that. You know, it doesn't have to be a hundred person firm that has a national footprint. If we can make an impact in, in 100 or 200 clients' lives at that level, I think that would then mean that those people can go out and make a difference in their friends and their communities through going through that transition with a little bit more ease. We can't take away the pain and the suffering, but we can make those complex decisions feel as if it's not as heavy.
1: So as we wrap up, this is a podcast about success. And one of the themes is just the, the word success means very different things to different people. And so, you know, you've built this successful growing advisory firm there in South Africa for the next 10 years and you know now saying the next stage of the journey and with focusing further on widowed clients. But I'm wondering how do you define success for yourself at this point?
2: Someone once said the freedom to do the things I want and the funds to achieve that. And so for me, it's maybe that, but maybe even on a smaller scale. So success right now is being able to work with a small amount of clients and have enough time to experience and see my daughter grow up and have some money to have fun in between that. It doesn't have to be millions of dollars, but it has to be a decent income. And then have a powerful team that we can also have people, you know, once again, play to their strengths and have fun when they're at work. I think we're, we're very fortunate to have a great team of people and and we enjoy coming to work or, or maybe I'm speaking on their behalf, You should ask them, but we all have have a lot of fun. This is a very serious profession, but we can still have fun. I often have people say to me, oh, you don't look like a financial advisor. Do I need to be more serious? I don't think so. I think there's a lot of serious things going out there. So It's having fun, it's spending time with my family and having a decent income through that and making a difference in the lives of my clients and my team.
1: I love it. I love it. Well, thank you so much, Louis, for joining us on the Financial Advisor Success Podcast.
2: Thank you, Michael. It's been an honor. I'm glad to be part of the list as a longtime listener. Thank you for the great work you do, and thanks for having me.
1: Awesome. Thank you.
0: Want even more ideas, tools, and resources on how to break through to the next level of success as a financial advisor?